Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Good morning. If you've been here before, uh, you'll know that I'm a very dynamic preacher. I walk around the stage a lot, I beat the pulpit a lot, I shout, uh, but today I'm not feeling well, so it's going to be a little bit different. Uh, no, probably pretty similar, but anyway. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to First Chronicles chapter 11. First Chronicles chapter 11. So uh, we're busy going through First Chronicles and... Uh, Last week we saw the kingdom, God removing the kingdom from King Saul, and uh, the last verse says it was given to David, and now the focus is going to be on David for quite a few chapters, because the chronicler is trying to uh, restore confidence in the Davidic line. So God's people have gone into exile, into Babylon, but now they're able to return But they had lost confidence in the temple, they had lost confidence in God's plan, they had lost confidence in the line or the lineage of David, because it was the Davidic kings that really got them into this mess. And so the chronicler is writing to encourage them to uh, restore temple worship, to go back to Jerusalem, to get behind the Davidic line, because it's through the Davidic line that the Messiah will come. And so today we're going to look at David, King David, so his anointing as king and his special forces, his mighty men. So I'm not going to read the whole chapter up front. Uh, I'll just read some sections and then uh, we'll look at them. So First Chronicles chapter 11, uh, let me read verses 1 through 3. It says, Then all Israel gathered together to David at Hebron, And said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, even when Saul was king, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. So we see in verse 1 there that uh, we're told that all Israel gathered together. This is a favorite phrase that the chronicler uses. Even later on in verse, I think it's verse 10, we'll see that he uses it again. Uh, What the chronicler is trying trying to get across is the unity amongst the people of God. He is trying to encourage them not to uh, be divisive. Uh, It's It's all Israel. Over and over again, he'll say this, all Israel was behind David. All Israel was united. All Israel came together. And again, that is a major theme. There were many factions and there was a lot of friction uh, amongst the Jews and a lot of tribalism. 
uh, with all the different tribes. And so the chronicler is trying to bring about unity, and that's a major theme that we'll unpack in in future sessions. But again, uh, the call for God's people to be united. We're all from different backgrounds, different cultures, different ethnicities, different language groups, all of these things, and it's a wonderful thing. But God brings us all together, and we are to be united in Christ and around His truth. And so they come together and they anoint king. And there's three reasons that, that are given by the chronicler why David is the true king. The first one, he is one of them. Okay? He's of their, their, their bones and their flesh. Uh, he was always courageous and always led them out. He was always brave. He was always a, a true leader. And thirdly, it was prophesied that he would be the king. And if you've been here before in this series and it's very important, I want to help you, give you principles when you read the Old Testament. For many Christians, reading the Old Testament is very difficult, especially the stories. Uh, people reduce the stories just to, to sort of um, moralistic principles, to be courageous or something like that. Whereas the New Testament tells us it's all about Jesus Christ. We want to see Christ. Uh, and so when we look at King David, we need to learn lessons about the true David. And so I want us to not focus so much on David and the mighty men, but learn the lessons that are there for us. As we said already last week, uh, Paul tells us that these things are written for our example. Okay? That's why it's so important that God's people spend time in the Old Testament. There are lessons to be learned here. And, and they're always written, well not always, but primarily written in narrative. They're stories. And most of our, our minds function uh, and, and interpret through stories. We remember things better through stories. We all remember the story of David and Goliath. We all remember the Daniel and the lion's den. All of those stories, they, they stay in our minds better than than. than you know, statements, propositional statements of truth. And so God has given us these wonderful stories. Uh, we need to cultivate a godly imagination. How to read these things, how to sort of take our minds back in time into those settings and then learn the lessons that God wants us to learn uh, from these stories. So hopefully as we go through Chronicles, this will become easier and easier. And if you have questions, please don't hesitate to speak to me afterwards. Okay, so how, how do we apply this to Christ? Uh, well, the first one is the incarnation. Okay. Christ is also fully human. Very, very important, critical. Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the Cappadocian church fathers, said, uh, what is not assumed in Christ is not redeemed or not healed in us. So Christ's incarnation is a full incarnation. He took upon himself a human body. Like ours, subject to weakness. You can go and read the Gospels. Jesus Christ got tired, didn't he? He felt weakness. He got hungry. He needed holidays. He said to his disciples, come, let's, let's draw aside for a while. Let's take a break. Okay? Ever thought of the Lord Jesus like that? I think most Christians think of the Lord Jesus as sort of a, a superman. That's sort of what we think of. We think, he, yeah, yeah. Yes, he was human, but, but the scriptures go to great lengths to show us that he was fully human. He bled and he died. He had to grow in stature and knowledge, Luke tells us, on two occasions. 
It wasn't as though he just learned Hebrew automatically because he's God. He had to sit and learn the Hebrew alphabet. Okay? He had to learn to read and write. He had to grow in all of these areas. Fighting sin was real for the Lord Jesus Christ. The scripture says, why is this so important? Because if he didn't take that full humanity upon himself, a human mind, a human soul, a human body, then our redemption is not complete. There is a part of you that's not redeemed. But he took full humanity upon himself, perfectly representing his people, so that we will be fully saved. It's a complete salvation. And secondly, how can he be a faithful high priest if he, if he's not like you and me? Of course, without sin. But if he doesn't know what it's like to be tempted, if he doesn't know what it's like to feel loneliness, if he doesn't know what it's like to feel uh, envy and be tempted to be envious, to be tempted to cover, to be tempted to lie, to be tempted to be cowardly, to be rejected, to be forsaken, to feel tired and weak and hungry. But the writer of Hebrews goes to great lengths to show us, no, he, he knows exactly what it's like. That's why you must always go to him. Whatever you're experiencing, go to him because he is touched with the, the feelings of your infirmities, with the weaknesses that you're experiencing in your exams, in your relationships, financial concerns, temptations, all of these things. Go to Christ. Of course, a superman who's just pretending doesn't really know what you're going through, but the scripture says, no, he knows. He understands. And that's incredible comfort. When you go to Christ, that he understands what you're going through. Never condoning sin, so don't confuse it. Don't think that this, un, this, his humanity is a license to sin. When the scriptures say that he remembers we are dust, it's not saying he remembers we're weak and uh, we're sinful. It's simply saying he remembers that we're weak and frail. We get tired, we get weak, we get hungry. That's part of being human, it's not sinful. So go to Christ. How can he be our true king, our true Messiah? Because he's fully human and is able to fully represent us to the Father. Secondly, like David, he was a courageous commander and he is a courageous commander. He's a great leader. He's called a prince here. And that's, that word in the Hebrew has the idea of a commander in chief. You know, in America, they have that term for the president. He's also called the commander in chief. It means he's in charge of the army. That's why he's got that, you know, the, if you believe the movies, he has that suitcase so he can press the button, you know. Because uh, he's the commander-in-chief. Well, Jesus Christ is our commander-in-chief. And he doesn't sit in a, you know, the White House and press buttons. He actually came into this earth. You read of the great generals in history, Alexander the Great. He act, at the age of 16, he led his first cavalry charge. His father was the king. He didn't have to do all of these things. But at the age of 16, he led his first cavalry charge. He was at the forefront. Great leaders were at the forefront. And so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews again says he's the pioneer of our faith. He's the one who went ahead and made a way for us. He's a courageous leader. At the end, he's totally forsaken, isn't he? All forsaken. They leave him. Alone he faces 
the powers of darkness. Alone he drinks the cup. He's not a general who sits back, you know, with, with drones 500,000 kilometers away. Probably totally wrong. Probably can't even be that far away. That's bad maths. <laughs> uh, anyway, a long way away. Remotely doing things. Our God is a greater David who, who comes and fights and fights alone and is victorious, conquers. He is worthy to be our king. And thirdly, he is prophesied about. Throughout the scriptures, the Messiah is prophesied. Uh, we don't have time to go through all of them, but just, uh, just the fact that he comes from David, John 7 verse 42 has not the scriptures said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was from? All of that prophesied hundreds, centuries earlier, fulfilled in Christ, a descendant of David, born in Bethlehem. Jesus himself says, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? The scribes who state the Bible saw that it's it's there in the scripture. It was all prophesied about. So let me challenge you, if you're not a Christian, if you have doubts about Christianity, you need to wrestle with this. Well, how is it that all these prophecies that are written hundreds, even thousands of years earlier, are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ? Is that just chance? Is that luck? There's too many of them for that to be the case. You can, you can have cognitive dissonance. You can say, I don't care. I'm going to live like this. But the reality is, you know. The pro- God prophesied centuries before. Not vague, not like Nostradamus where they try and make it fit. And it's, you've got to add a few letters and remove a few things and do all sorts of tricks. And then eventually it's, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> uh, no, accurate Uh, prophecies, exact prophecies. You can't will what city you're going to be born in. You can't will that. But it's prophesied of Christ where he would be born. So let me challenge you. Come to the scriptures. Come humbly. If you come with arrogance to God's word or to anything to do with God, he will resist you. But come humbly and you will see God will reveal himself to you. That's a guarantee. Humble yourself before God. And you will see the truth of Christianity. You will know Christ. And so the true Messiah, the true King is Christ. David is a shadow, a type of that. It's fulfilled in Christ because he is fully human. He is our true Messiah. He is a great warrior, courageous. Remember when they came to him even... uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he do? He's, he's, he looked out for his disciples. He says, leave them alone. A true leader. Not like Adam. What did Adam and, what did Adam and Eve do? No, it's not my fault. It's their fault. It's her fault. It's his fault. It's your fault. Jesus protects them. Leave them alone. Leave my disciples alone. He lays down his life. A true warrior. A true leader. A great high priest. It was prophesied about. Verse 4, the account of David taking the city of Jerusalem. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is Jabus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. 
The inhabitants of Jabez said to David, You will not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. David said, Whoever strikes the Jebusites first shall be chief and commander. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, went up first, so he became chief. And David lived in the stronghold, therefore it was called the city of David. And he built the city all around from the Milo in complete circuit. And Joab repaired the rest of the city, and David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. And so now we see the, 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 the capture of Jerusalem, the start of the city of Jerusalem, with respect to the people of God. So the Israelites were already in the promised land. They had entered through Joshua and taken much of the promised land, but not this area, this area of the Jebusites. Didn't belong to anyone in the, the, the children of Israel, any of the children of Israel. Uh, and so David is going to go and take the city of Jerusalem. And they mock him, don't they? They say, you'll never come here. In fact, in, in Samuel, they say, we can put our, we can put our lame soldiers <laughs> on the walls and you will still not get in here. Okay? They really mock David. Uh, but of course, uh, he who laughs last, laughs longest. It's somewhere in the Bible, I'm sure. Uh, and here you see it. David lived in the stronghold. Uh, they could not keep David out. And David ended up making his home in Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem, I hope you realize, points to something much greater. When you come to the New Testament, uh, it points to what the scriptures call a heavenly Jerusalem. It's called here Zion as well. The stronghold of Zion. It's hard to know that what Zion means, the etymology of it. Some say mountain, uh, and that sounds quite good because it's often linked to a mountain, a mountain of God, Zion. Uh, and mountain in Scripture often refers to a kingdom. Think of Daniel's uh, dream of the great mountain that comes, the kingdom of God. And so it points again beyond itself to the kingdom of God. Jerusalem means the city or foundation of peace. City of Peace, and of course, Jesus Christ is called the Prince of Peace. And so, our concern is not so much with the, the, the earthly city of Jerusalem. In fact, the Apostle Paul says this in Galatians chapter 4, verse 25. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So, he says that's the earthly Jerusalem. It's, you know, it's quite uh, remarkable what he says here. He likens Jerusalem to an Arab city. It's a city in Arabia. It's like Mount, like, uh, Mount Sinai in Arabia. She's in slavery to her children. You see, all those who reject Christ, doesn't matter your background, your ethnicity. If you reject Christ, you're in slavery. You're in bondage to false teaching. And then he says, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. And so this city points beyond itself to a, a heavenly reality. In fact, it points to the kingdom of God that we are a part of. So I know now you really need to use your imagination, uh, because yeah, in, the, in the Old Testament we get these shadows and types, we get physical realities, a real physical city. And then it says, well, that's not, that's not the goal. That's not the purpose. That was just to show you a picture. 
that now as God's people, we are part of something spiritual, a heavenly Jerusalem. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 12 verse 22. But you, talking to God's people, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all. Isn't this amazing? I want you to to use your sanctified imagination here. He's talking to these believers as they gather. And he's saying, do you know the reality is, this is the reality. If you're a child of God, where you're sitting right now is in the heavenly Jerusalem. This is what is true of you. As you sit there and you say, sure, this seat is hard. <laughs> this is sore. I'm feeling cold with aches and pains. There's a greater reality. If you're a child of God, you're part of this. Do you know who is with us? The Bible says the Lord Jesus Christ will be with His people singing praises to the Father. The Holy Spirit is with us. All our our brothers and sisters throughout history who have gone on into glory are worshipping with us. Praising God. All those that we learnt about in the genealogies, the first nine chapters, are true ancestors as children of God. We are descendants of Abraham. If we are men and women of faith, worshipping with us, we've come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? We've come to Christ who's whose shed blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? Cain kills Abel and the Lord says to Cain, your brother's blood is crying out for justice, for vengeance. See, that's the, that's the cry of Abel's blood. Revenge, justice. What does Jesus' blood cry out? Forgiveness, mercy. That's why we're able to come, because there is forgiveness and mercy in in Christ. One commentator says this, I thought this was very good. He says, there is a certain genius in David's annexation of the Jebusite city of Jerusalem. He secures a neutral site for his capital city. This means David has no political obligations to any Israelite special interest group. The likely result had he established his capital city in the territory of one of the 12 tribes. See what David does is he chooses a neutral city. It doesn't belong to any of the tribes. And he sets up his capital there. I found this out about America as well. Washington, I always wondered why is it called Washington DC? What does the DC stand for? It's District of Columbia. Washington actually doesn't, even though it sits in a certain state, is actually outside of it's its own thing. It's its own district, District of Columbia, so that no state can have a hold on Washington. That's the idea here. And so I also want to tell you that the kingdom of God is not, is not lobby groups. I think there's so many Christians think there's lobby groups, political interest groups, and they're going to bring that into the kingdom of God. It's not bound to your, your interest group, your political affiliation, uh, your zeal for whatever it is, It's about Christ. It's His kingdom and He will build it. It's for all nations. 
It is for all people who will repent and put their trust in Christ. Continuing verse 10 now, we get to David's mighty men. And as a, as a young Christian, I loved reading these stories. They're so, it's like reading Judges as well, and Samson and all of these. They're amazing stories. So look at verse 10. Now these are the chiefs of David's mighty men who gave him strong support in his kingdom together with all Israel. See, there it is again. To make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So these are David's mighty men who supported him. who were there with, with him. Many of them joined him when he was fleeing from Saul. They joined him in the cave of Adullam. This is an account of David's mighty men. And so there's now a list of the, th- there's the three, they call the three, and then there's the 30. Um, even though sometimes it's more than 30, maybe it comes in and out. But it seemed to ha- have come to designate sort of an elite force, the 30 and the three. And they were, they were the elite force of the day. And they were also the secret service. So remember the secret service guards the president. And so they would also guard David, but they were also his elite fighting force. And the first one that's mentioned is Jashabim, a Hachmanite, was chief of the three. Now listen to his story. He wielded his spear against 300 whom he killed at one time. <laughs> uh, about 500 years after this is recorded, there's, there's another famous battle. You may have seen the movie. It's actually called The 300. And uh, a lot of it is, is, is based on truth. So it's a battle at a place called Thermopylae. The Persians were wanting to attack Greece. Many people feel that these battles, Thermopylae and Salamis, were some of the most important in world history because it stopped the Eastern influence conquering the West. Uh, and so it, it had massive ripple effects for thousands of years. Uh, but Xerxes I, the Persian leader, came across, and you know the story, there's 300 Spartans, and they block this narrow way, and they, they're, they're fighting against uh, sort of 150,000 to 200 or to 300,000 men. We're not sure of the figures, but a massive number of, of men that they managed to hold off for a long period of time. So it's a remarkable story. But you know, if David had been around, he could have just said, Jashabim. <laughs> Let's get those guys, please. Uh, so how do we apply that to us? What is the lesson we have to learn here? Must we all go and get spears and learn how to fight with spears? Is that the message? What, uh, well, remember, as I've said to you before, when we come to the New Testament... Paul is not ashamed to use language to do with swords and armor and all of these things, but how does he apply it? He says we're in a spiritual battle. This man is facing overwhelming odds, but does he give up? No, he perseveres, and the Lord gives him victory. And there will, I guarantee there will be times in your life when the temptation seems overwhelming. It seems that you're alone against 300 people demons you think I can't resist this but by God's grace you can 
Another guy is mentioned later on, Abishai. We're also told he killed 300 men. Verse 12 says, Next to him among the three mighty, was, three mighty men was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the Ahite. First lesson we can learn here, even if your parents have funny names, God can still use you. Right? <laughs> Don't let that be a hindrance. So Eliezer, he was with David at Pastamim when the Philistines were gathered there for battle. There was a plot of ground full of barley and the men fled from the Philistines. So here we are seeing the old enemies again, the Philistines, the ones who killed Saul, Goliath. And here they are again. And everyone flees from them, except for Eliezer. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and killed the Philistines and the Lord saved them by a great victory. So the Philistines come, everyone runs away. There's a plot, a piece of land with barley on it. The next story, uh, which is, is for some reason not in Chronicles, but I'll tell you, guy number three is mentioned in Second Samuel 23. His name is Shammah. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi. This is in chapter 23, verse 11, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended and struck down the Philistines. Okay. What's remarkable about this to me is I don't really care about a field of lentils or a plot of barley. Like the whole army come in and there's just a field of, of lentils, especially lentils. I don't know. <laughs> if you, sorry if you like lentils. Uh, I'm not going to risk my life for that. It seems such a small thing. It's a field, one fi a plot. But what does he do? He stands there, both of them. And they resist the Philistines. Have you ever thought of the story of David, with David and Goliath? You know what he used to do when he was a shepherd? We're told that he would look after the sheep... And if a lion or a bear took a lamb, what would he do? He would go and rescue that lamb. I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> Priority, human life, animal life. Uh, I, I would never... It's a, just a lamb. We can get another one. Uh, a lion, a, a bear... But you see, the idea here is there was nothing too small. What I'm trying to get across to you as you fight sin is don't say, well, this is a small thing. I, it's not a big deal. We say that, don't we, with time. Our time, being punctual, being respecting other people's times. These are not big things. How I use my money. It's, yeah, it's a little dirty joke. It's, fine. it's not a big deal. No. No matter how small it is. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm talking about sin. You fight, no matter what. It might seem so stupid. It might seem a field of lentils to someone. Like, what, what, what's wrong with you? I think you're more spiritual than everyone else. No, you, because you love God and you will fight, even for a field of barley, even for a little lamb. You'll fight. Remember what Jesus says, to get this principle across, Luke 16, verse 10. 
One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. Well, how could David defeat Goliath? Because he was faithful with the lambs. I think it's Tozer who said, who you are in secret is who you will be in public. We all like to think, on, you know, when the big occasion comes, I'll, I'm there, uh, I'll look great. You won't if you haven't been preparing in secret. If you haven't been fighting over the little things. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in in much. It's a principle. No matter how small it might seem. No matter, especially in the world, of course, they, they, they'll belittle you. I said, that's just a stupid thing. What's wrong with you? No, but you've, you've made a commitment. You want to be part of God's elite forces. You're going to fight no matter what. No matter how overwhelming the odds seem, no matter how small the area is, it might seem, but you won't give a centimeter to Satan. And then it ends with saying, the Lord saved them by a great victory. You have that, that heart, that courage, that nobility. The Lord will give you the victory. And then we come to verse 15. Three of the thirty chief men went down to the rock to David at the cave of Adullam, when the army of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. This is talking back earlier. David was then in the stronghold, and then the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. So where's David from? Bethlehem. That's where he was born. The Philistines have set up their stronghold, their garrison in Bethlehem, his, his city where he was born. It, it is now owned by the Philistines. That's where they've established their headquarters and their their base. And David just says this longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. So here he's in fighting, he's running away, it's, and he just, he just remembers his childhood. He just remembers maybe as a young boy going to the well and after he had been playing with his friends or working in the field and how sweet the water was. You know those sort of, the older people, older among us will know as nostalgia. Okay? Uh, you remember something from your youth and it, it's special. That's what's going on here. And he just says it out loud. He just says, oh, I would have, would have loved some water from the well in Bethlehem. Look how these guys respond. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. They risked their lives. They break into the, the Philistines' garrison just to get some water. Again, the chronicler is showing that David is worthy. The people supported David. They honored David. But look at what David does. But David would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me before my God that I should do this. Shall I drink the lifeblood of these men? For at the risk of their lives they brought it. Therefore he would not drink it. These things did the three mighty men. 
Maybe the first time you read it, they think that's strange. They've just risked their life to bring you this water. Why don't you just drink it and, and say thank you so much? But you see, David, again, is more noble, isn't he? He gives it to the Lord. He says, I, these men have risked their lives for me. I'm not worthy of that. Now, how does this point us to Christ? I think that when we come to the New Testament, we have this language of being poured out. Paul used, likes to use that language. I would say to you, there is only one David who you should pour out your life for. And David understood that. That's why he pours it out to the Lord. He says, I'm not worthy of this. There is a greater David. If you're serving in the church because of your parents, because of the pastors, it's wrong. If you're, if you're doing anything to serve the Lord, but it's because of other people, you're missing it. It it's, must be because of Christ. You pour out your life for Christ. Paul says this, 2 Timothy 4, 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. I have fought the good fight. See, there's that military language again. See how he links it? He's lived his life as a, as a drink offering, poured out himself for the Lord. So let me challenge you. Make sure your motives in all of life Remember in scripture it says, in any time, in marriage, as unto the Lord. In work, as unto the Lord. Live your life poured out as unto the Lord. If you do it for other people, when they fail you, what are you going to You become bitter, aren't you? You're going to see the shortcomings, you're going to, oh, why did I do all of that? But if you do it for the Lord, it's, it's okay. You can persevere even when the person treats you badly or sins against you because you did it for the the Lord. He is the only one worthy for you to pour out your life. Twenty and twenty one mention Abishai who I mentioned before, then twenty two Benaiah the son of Jehoiada was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two heroes of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. So, I'm sure it's it's hard enough to kill a lion, I've been told. Uh, Then he kills a lion in a pit. He jumps down into a pit to kill a lion. And then on top of that, it's on a snowy day. They didn't have K-Way and... uh, (laughs) It's... It's hard. This is, this, is, this is rough, isn't it? He's killing a lion in a pit, so there's no, there's no way to hide, and it's freezing cold. There's snow. Again, fighting sin is hard. If it was easy, we wouldn't have a problem. Okay? It'd be no big deal. We wouldn't need to meet every week. We'd be okay. But it is hard. And sometimes it can seem that everything is against you. There's a lion and a pit and snow. But again, in Christ there is victory. Think of the Lord Jesus in the wilderness. Without food for 40 days and 40 nights. Drained the end of himself physically. And Satan comes and tempts him. And offers him all these things. Continues with with, uh, Benaiah, quite a guy. 
Verse 23, and he struck down an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits tall. The Egyptian had in his hand a spear like a weaver's beam. So his spear was like a huge beam of wood. That's, this guy reminds us of Goliath, doesn't he? But Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. He beat this man with his own weapon. Took his weapon and used it against him. And the Lord Jesus told us in Matthew 10, 16, he says, I want you to be as cunning as serpents. Isn't that interesting? Say like, Lord, but isn't the devil a serpent? The Lord says, I want you Christians to be as cunning as serpents. Yeah, this guy, Benaiah, took the Egyptian's weapon and used it against him to kill him. Lord Jesus tells us to, to behave like a serpent in certain ways. Now, what does that mean? Of course, not sinning. But to be cunning like Satan is. To be shrewd, to be wise in how we, how we fight sin, how we evangelize, how we build the kingdom of God. To use the devil's own weapons against him. I think many, many Christians are fighting in a dumb way. Okay? Part of the warfare that we're involved with is not just sin, but against ungodly philosophies. It's also refuting wrong thinking in the world and evangelizing those who are lost. But so many Christians are just, just shouting and slandering everyone and thinking they're being courageous and being brave. You heard that saying, you get more flies through honey than vinegar. Throughout the scriptures, we're told to be winsome, to be loving, to love even our enemies. Have you ever been persuaded of a position or the truth of a position by someone shouting it at you and calling you an idiot? (laughs) No, you would be remarkable if you have, okay? It's not how people, we don't respond well to that. So I, it grieves me when Christians who are being winsome in social media, trying to win people, trying to persuade them, trying to understand where they're coming from, are just thrown out as being cowards. If they were cowards, then they wouldn't, they wouldn't involve themselves at all. Because they get slandered anyway. Be wise with the way you're reaching out to your work colleagues, to your friends. Draw alongside them. Speak the truth in love. Use social media in that way. Fight clever. Be shrewd. How did Satan come to Eve? How did he manipulate her? Did he say, you stupid person? What's wrong with you? No. Oh. Did God really say, look at, look at this tree, isn't it amazing? Oh, it's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. We're to use similar tactics. To take the spear and use it against Satan. To be shrewd. To be clever. Not deceitful. We're not lying. To be clever. We have the truth. And then the last verses from verse 26 through 47, the end of the chapter, is a list of the rest of the men. We're not going to go through it. 
if you were to read through it, it is quite remarkable that you will find all these tribes that are mentioned that are not part of Israel. You will find an Ammonite, a Moabite, Uriah the Hittite. You know that Uriah the Hittite, you know who that is? He's the husband of Bathsheba. He was a mighty, one of, he was one of David's mighty men. He was part of the elite forces of David. And an Ammonite and a Moabite, again, already here in the Old Testament, that God's people were to be made up of all nations. That has always been God's desire and God's goal. And he will do that. And he is doing that. He's building his kingdom from all the nations of the world. And Uriah the Hittite, this, this one of the 30, a noble man, a valiant man. In fact, when you read the account of, of David's sin, now, this man is so noble that he won't even go and visit to spend a night with his wife while his, his other soldiers are on the battlefield. David even works so hard to get him drunk. This is a noble man, Uriah the Hittite. And what did David do to him? Betrayed him and murdered him. You see, that's why we don't worship this David We worship the true David because Jesus Christ will never betray you. He will never let you down. He will never be disloyal. So let me challenge you in closing. Don't you want to be part of of the Lord Jesus' elite forces? To be a person, a man or a woman. This is open to all men and women and children. Children, this is a war you can fight. (laughs) You must fight. To fight sin, to fight wrong thinking. This, to make it into this team, has nothing to do with physical prowess or intellectual prowess or human ability or human recognition. It's a spiritual warfare. And if you have the Holy Spirit, if you are submitting to God, you can be great in God's kingdom. And can hear those words on Judgment Day. Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for these powerful stories. Vivid stories that fill our imaginations. Lord, we don't want it to end there. We want to use these stories to point us to Christ and his kingdom and what it means to be great in his kingdom. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work, uh, work in a wonderful way. If there are any here who don't know you, Lord Jesus, they don't know how amazing you are, how courageous and glorious and valiant and loyal you are, that you would give them grace to repent and believe and submit themselves to you, the Commander-in-Chief, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And for all of us, Father, we, we pray that you would help us to be valiant in this warfare, to fight even when it seems overwhelming, to fight even when we, it, it, uh, it seems impossible, to fight even when it seems like such a small thing, Nobody would maybe even notice it, we think. 
But Lord, if we're not faithful in the little things, then how can you trust us with the big things? How can you give us great victories if we're not taking care of the small victories? And Father, please help us to be shrewd and cunning in the right way. To be smart. To use your tactics. To do all these things that we might win some. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless our feeble efforts. We thank you for the promise that you will give us victory. In Jesus' name, amen.